Please be seated. Good morning, Church of the Cross. In this past year of unprecedented media consumption, Drew and I found ourselves watching something that was a little outside of our typical genres. We were watching a reality show in which a group of seasoned survivalists, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and the like, would kidnap someone in their friend group and then drop them in some remote and random location. One man was dropped in the Gulf of Mexico. Another, while wearing shorts and flip-flops, was left in the Arctic Circle. And the one we saw, a man was dropped in the, in the Namibian desert. And all you see around him is sand, and there's not a cloud in the sky. The voiceover of his so-called friends tells us that several miles to the west is the coastline. And if he finds the coastline and takes it north, he'll get to a safe location with water, shelter, and food. He will have completed his mission. But if he wanders to the east, all that awaits him is more desert. And it will only be a matter of hours before the harsh environment takes him out. The man has very limited time to make decisions and survive. And the first thing he has to do is get oriented. And somehow, from a consistent scene of sand around him, he has to figure out that he has to go west. And as we ourselves kind of airdrop into our passage in Romans today, let us get oriented by asking ourselves two questions. Where are we? And what do we do? Since mid-April, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, where he teaches the good news, the gospel of Jesus, and its implications to a culturally divided community. Paul connects his readers with the heart of the gospel, the assurances of the gospel, and gives a defense of this gospel. And in these later chapters, we've seen him move more directly into how then the Roman church might live, how they might embody and enact this gospel in their everyday lives. And our passage today lies right in the middle of those instructions. And it's right here in the middle, Paul makes sure to orient his listeners. He gives them a frame, a context for his instructions. He says, and do this, do this offering yourselves as living sacrifices, this clinging to good, this loving of neighbor, do all this understanding the present time. Journalist and author Yuni Hong has spent some time writing about the Korean concept of nunchi. Literally, this translates to eye measure, but it's the art of speed reading a room. It's where you sense what people are thinking and feeling, um, and re you respond appropriately. Nunchi emphasizes the collective, whereas you might enter a room and see one person over here or one person over there, this one takes the general temperature, notices the room. It's an incredibly high value for a Korean culture to have or develop quick nunchi. Hong writes, the great thing about nunchi is you don't need to be rich 
or privileged or even in a good mood to enjoy it. In fact, Koreans say nunchi is the secret weapon of the disadvantaged. Nunchi exists so that the embattled can focus on changing the circumstances within their control. You don't need to be the loudest in order to present your ideas or ask for a raise. You just need to have the best timing. Nunchi acts understanding the present time. The power of Nunchi is in that understanding of the present time. And Paul invites the church to more than just the behaviors of a Christian, but also to an awareness of what Christ is doing in the present time, to have this cosmically expansive nunchi. And so what is the present time? How do we read the room? The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. We live in this particular era where Jesus has come and we're waiting for him to come again. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It is at hand and yet we await its consummation. We await God's total and complete enacted reign on the earth and all therein. This era is like a night that we know is winding down. It's giving way to that day, but the day is not here yet. There were about two weeks in this summer where we, at least our household, but maybe us collectively, thought COVID was on its way out. (laughs) And then Delta came along. (laughs) And part of our difficulty in this pandemic has been our inability to locate ourselves. Where are we? in the pandemic. Are we at the end? The middle? Surely not the beginning. Is the dawn coming? There have been moments in the past couple of years where all we could say is, it's dark out. We might make plans now, but maybe we're also buying the travel insurance. And while the pandemic is an easy go-to because it's something we've all experienced together, there may be other features of this nearly 2,000-year night that you're feeling more acutely this morning. Broken systems that we thought might be fixed by now. Broken bodies, broken institutions, places of personal pain or the tight grip of old habits. To all of these places, to our time and era, Paul's words encourage us that the night is ultimately finite. The night will yield at the coming of the Lord. The day draws ever nearer. Understand the present time. So what then do we do? We wake up and we get dressed. We keep the present time in mind. We respond to the present time. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. When we began sheltering in place, I will fully admit to relishing a couple of Sundays to attend worship in my PJs. 
I feel like that's probably a common occurrence. Praise be to God if you dressed yourself every morning for worship during the pandemic. Uh, And it was fun, right? It's the making the best of an awful situation, right? A little extra comfort in an uncomfortable time. But at some point, though, wearing pajamas changed. Wearing pajamas to online worship became something different. At some point, it became a sign of feeling depressed. There was nothing for which to dress. It was no longer the clothes of the playful or cheeky or kid on a snow day that I was wearing, but it was the clothing of the unseen, the disengaged. Did I even know when I'd have to wear regular clothes again? The cover of darkness, the cover of our four walls and roof, the cover of anonymity of the internet, These are all places where we more easily believe and act as if we are unseen. Places where, if we are not well-oriented to the time, we're more likely to act contrary to the Spirit. Paul lists a few sins here that might show up in the night. This is by no means exhaustive, but representative of a man of tremendous wisdom and particular knowledge of the Roman church. They are behaviors of people who don't have the time. What are our behaviors when we don't keep the time? Some of them are bound to be the same. I think of presently kind of not keeping the time, this remaining in the night, as being a little bit in a ditch. And on the one hand, you have somebody who's kind of clinging to the side of the ditch, like trying to make a way. Um, The picture that comes to mind is, have you guys heard of this phenomenon, the uh, revenge bedtime procrastination? Who here has heard of this? Okay, a few. A few have had the pop psychology articles pop up on their feed, like me. Okay, so revenge bedtime procrastination. It's this idea that we have anger and resentment at our lack of control over our day. And so we end up staying up late to consume media, watch shows, scroll our phones as a type of seizing control, of taking revenge on the day we spent in ways that did not gratify our flesh. Changing a poopy diaper, responding to a disgruntled or difficult client, Enduring another interaction with an emotionally unhealthy boss or extended family member. None of these are how we would, in our flesh, choose our days. When we don't think that the glorious day is coming, we try to make some kind of day for ourselves. Scratch some out. An electronic day by the light of our phones. (laughs) Let's make it happen. I picture this as somebody who's, yeah, clinging to the side of a ditch, saying, no, I won't go into despair because I'm going to make day for myself. But there's another kind of way you can respond to this ditch, this darkness of night. There's one way that there's somebody standing, and we do this occasionally, we stand in the bottom of the ditch, and we might say, no, no, it's day. We don't trust that day is coming, so we try to pretend that it's day. Maybe we take the parts of ourselves or our lives or our society that are unpleasant and we shunt them off to the side. We keep them siloed and we just try to focus on the positive. 
Just let's live in the day. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently that had uh, researcher Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was kind of focusing on her work. If you don't know that name, she is the woman who developed the idea of the five stages of grief. And the reason she did this, it's a fascinating podcast. It was called The Queen of Dying, um, and it was on Radiolab. But the reason that she did this was at the time when she started doing her research among the terminally ill, she noticed our hospitals shunted them off to the side. They were placed in different wards. And even at the time she was writing, it was common, much more common than it is now, for family members and loved ones to withdraw. So these terminally ill would be on their hospital wards and then not visited by loved ones because it's too much. Not only that, doctors and nurses would visit them less would not ask them how they were, but just would come and do their duty and leave. And she said her work was the work that she said, what I hope people take away from this is I hope that they would be encouraged to draw near to the hopelessly sick. We are the hopelessly sick at times. The people in our community, places in our lives that feel hopelessly sick. And it's easy in the night of that, in the night of terminal illness, in the terminal illness of sin, to say, let's put it over here. Let's just pretend it's day. It's too much. Where there might be a false triumphalism, there's also the possibility of a false fatalism. I picture this person as lying down in the bottom of the ditch. We don't have time, and we don't take into account the coming of the day. We see the night in us, and we see it. And as the hymn says, we are tempted to despair. In the words of comedian Ali Wong, I don't want to lean in, I want to lie down. In the night, we're tempted to scratch out a day, to pretend like it's day, or to just lie down. Where are you tempted to turn when we misread the time, when the night and the cover of darkness feels present and unending? What might you need to put aside? I noticed both here at Church of the Cross and at Christ Church during the past year, there was this particular note, messages or exhortations, plural, about using our bodies in worship. Standing, sitting, kneeling, even as we were at home, please, almost this pleading of engage. I don't know if the leadership would say it this way, but we were, they were trying to rouse us from sleep. Wake up with every part of your being. Don't let this night fool you. Day is coming. Let's live like it. Put on the armor of light. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's letters, we often see reference to this putting on of the character of Jesus, clothing ourselves in the attributes of light, truth, righteousness, faith, love, in order to live in the light of day and even do battle with the powers of darkness. Douglas Moo, a heavyweight scholar of Romans, writes that to put on the Lord Jesus Christ in this broader context of Romans 
means that we are to consciously embrace Christ in such a way that his character is manifested in all we do and say. As I spent time in this passage preparing for this morning, it slowly became clear to me that something was missing. Or rather, something is very present in this passage, but unnamed. This thing invisibly unites our understanding of the time and animates practical steps of getting dressed. It's hope. Not once does the word hope appear in this passage, and yet the theme of hope is integral to the message here. Hope acts like the negative space of the passage, giving the words their form just as much as the ink. The day is almost here. Paul calls the Romans to behave as those who do not just have hope, but those who are to put on, clothe themselves in living hope. Getting dressed for the day while it's still night out is an activated hope in the coming and company of Jesus. And hope is one of these words that sounds positive. Um, I'm pretty sure it's printed on a number of things. I believe it was a political slogan (laughs) several years ago. But admittedly, our relationship with hope can be complicated. My husband Drew and my son Isaac, uh, staunch Longhorn fans, had their hearts broken yesterday. Drew said it's having hope that makes a defeat like that hurt so bad. My kids and I are reading the book, Flora and Ulysses, and in it, the protagonist, 10-year-old Flora, has already had enough disappointment and confusion to proclaim herself a natural-born cynic. She reads and she absorbs a magazine called Terrible Things Can Happen to You. She tries to remember what to do in any number of disaster scenarios. She repeats a mantra to herself. Do not hope, instead observe. Because of the losses in her life, she tries to protect her heart constantly. Do not hope, instead observe. Paul's words here speak a fuller, a better invitation. Observe, be real about the night, yes, and hope. Swiss theologian Emil Brunner wrote, Where faith in Christ looks at the future, it turns into hope. Yet this future is not remote, something that glimmers on the distant horizon of history. It is the future of the Lord, and this future is already in the process of happening. With every hour, we approach it more closely. Already it throws light into the darkness of the present. Our hope is alert awake to both the reality of the night alongside the reality of the kingdom of God at hand and in anticipation of the kingdom to come. An activated hope is one that banks not on feelings of hopefulness, but recognizes a hope whose locus is outside of one's feelings, calling them to action. I never expected to use Jerry Seinfeld as a uh, illustration of hope, (laughs) If you know him, he is not somebody who is known for being particularly hopeful about himself, humanity, and the world. 
But on The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon asked him to give advice to people who wrote in with their various problems. In one of his responses, he talked about the fact that he never wants to do anything. That may be you, that may be me. <laughs> that may be our children. <laughs> he says that even when he wants to do something, he's only right about 50% of the time. Meaning that even when he wants to do it, he was feeling hopeful it would be good. He was only glad he did it half the time. But, he said, anything my wife wants me to do, I absolutely don't want to do it. And I'm always glad I did it. It's a surprising picture of activated hope. The sense that I am compelled by love to say yes to something my senses say no to and to believe I will find surprising life there. That's an activated hope. Hope getting dressed in the night is far more than an enjoyable feeling of positive anticipation. It is a movement toward that which is real and good and unseen. Your presence here today, regardless of how you feel, whether online or in person, is an act of hope. Your hope may feel distant, but you are activating it presently. Let us together with this activated hope keep watch and be alert to what the Lord is doing. Getting dressed, putting on the armor of light, is an activated hope specifically in the coming and company of Jesus. His coming is the reason we clothe ourselves, and he himself is our clothing. He companions us in this present time. Friends, God is a good companion in the night. He is one who is able to keep watch even when we are sleepy. As we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus kept watch with people throughout spiritually dark nights, situationally dark moments. When Jesus walked with Jairus on the way to heal his daughter, the news came of Jairus' daughter's death. Jesus called him to faith, knowing he'd raise her from the dead. But he didn't tell Jairus this. He told him not to fear and to believe. How long was that walk to Jairus' house? What was said or not said in that walk? After the crushing news and the call to faith. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus was with him. Amidst the begging of desperate people, the hard-heartedness of his disciples, betrayals, denials, and other moments where the night felt thick, Jesus never left. We believe that the day is coming, even near, yes, when Jesus will return. And we do not endure this night alone. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Through the Spirit, Christ is keeping watch. We are made aware he is keeping watch with us, even now. Church of the Cross, let us remember that the night, while real and present, is finite. The source of our hope is anything but. 
May we cling to our infinite living hope. And may he keep us alert as he companions us towards the, toward the ever closer day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.